In this podcast, Pan Labranchik talks to Grant Blaschke, the lead clinical advisor at Beyond Blue. What influenced you to study medicine and then your fellowship in general practice? I was very interested uh, in medicine. I like the idea of combining sort of scientific knowledge with helping people. Seemed like a good way to spend your life. And um, uh, so I studied medicine and I had some really inspiring lecturers. I did a bit of hospital work, but as with most GPs, I'm fiercely independent and I love the uh, sort of non-institutional nature of being a GP and you could set your own hours and have all sorts of adventures and, you know, we're pretty lucky as GPs. You can turn up in any city in Australia tomorrow morning and by lunchtime have a job. So um, I love the flexibility and the... uh, Focus really on relationships with people. So, yes, you need to know about illness and conditions, but you get to know people over many years, which is lovely. Has the impact of COVID-19 highlighted areas, communities or sectors that need greater attention with regard to resources and support in mental health? What a time we've had with this COVID pandemic. I mean, who saw it coming? We were all cruising along like next week was going to be the same as last week and um, surprise. And particularly in Victoria where we're still in lockdown, it's been a really rugged few months. I think what I've seen as a GP and at Beyond Blue is there's some particularly vulnerable people. Not much fun if you're single living on your own, if your family's out of the state or out of the country. Long haul, a lot of hours in the day and so we spend a lot of time trying to help people who are really just a bit lonely. Then you've got your pressure cooker households. These are people, you know, partners at home, kids are at home maybe, and you're all at the kitchen table and, you know, many people have bought these cool little tiny inner city apartments or houses that they thought would be great. But when you're in it 24 hours a day, it all gets a bit much. So there's them. Then there's your people who had mental health issues to begin with, of which there's many. You know, 2 million Australians a year with anxiety, 1 million with depression. So, you know, for some of them, this is their worst nightmare, you know, the isolation and, and that sort of negativity if they're depressed really feeds into this algorithmic-driven news cycle and you can really go down the plug hole of feeling like it's the end of the world. So they're not having much fun either and I've been very impressed with the government's Um, a decision to do telehealth. So that's meant I've been able to keep up with a lot of my patients who've had mental health conditions and, um, you know, get them to see psychologists. And in Victoria, the Better Access program's been extended to 20 sessions of Medicare-subsidised psychologists. So that's a great thing for people because this is is pretty tough. People have had mental health issues. Last, Last group I mentioned, the elderly. And I think for them, not only are they, you know, most at risk if they get COVID because they're the ones that get really sick mainly, but I think a lot of them have lost their confidence. You know, they're they're at home, they're with, um, you know, maybe a partner or maybe on their own, and it's all it's all been I think pretty tough for the older members of our community as well. How have you seen the development of digital health support mental health care and improve outcomes? 
Well, it's interesting because we were cruising along all sort of slowly adopting telehealth and, you know, thinking about me- digital medical records and a few sort of online treatments and things. But as with any crisis, you know, whether it's a, a world war or, or a Great Depression, you, you see this explosion of um, innovation and embracement of the new technologies. And so what I've seen is that, you know, telehealth, which was a cottage industry, has become absolutely mainstream now and all the uh, doctors, most of the doctors are using it. Um, so this has great opportunities after COVID, you know, for access to care for people from rural, regional areas, but also the online technologies, and we're a bit lucky at this time of history that we've got some really good online resources brewing. Beyond Blue's put an immense amount of resources into a dedicated Corona Beyond Blue website. We've also got a chat function and we've got this forum which we've had running at Beyond Blue for some years but since COVID, since sort of March, April, we've had 1.3 million people who are on the Beyond Blue forums. These are moderated forums, so safe space, talking about, you know, how are they managing all the things that are bothering them. Finally, there's some very high-tech sort of stuff coming down the high, coming down the pipeline you know yeah. artificial intelligence and chatbots and there's a number of good online um, resources a good source for people to go to is head to health which is the government's sort of uh, collation of all the online treatments things like mood gym my compass chatbots all sorts of things it's a good place to start head to health if you want to get a sense of the suite of online treatments okay. that are there. and in terms of people who aren't tech savvy and you know maybe the age has this been taken into account on the digital health front or one of the difficulties at the moment is it's great things are going online, but what I've observed with my older patients is some um, embrace it, but there really are people who are not digital natives and they do find that the online resources, even if it's, you know, trying to go on Zoom to talk to family or, you know, trying to get on the the government website to check something out, um, they don't find it easy. And and I think the best way to think of it is like someone who is learning English for the first time in their mid-70s. It's going to be a little bit of a struggle to get just even the basic grammar. Mm. But I've been spending quite a lot of time um, encouraging my older patients, to get some of their younger, you know, grandchildren or children to spend some time with them, help set them up properly because it's sort of not optional at the moment. You know, it's their window to the world. It's their way of connecting. They can just jump on Zoom and go, oh, okay, great. And outcomes, when do you think we'll be able to see if digital health has been able to improve mental health outcomes? Because it's still early days, isn't it, to see if it's going to have an impact? When we think about uh, the outcomes of digital health, we think about it at a lot of different levels. So when you think about the sort of 
are digital resources that are there. Some are about diagnosis, some are about monitoring, some are about treating, some are about predicting prognosis. So there's certainly some good research around some of the online treatments now, particularly, you know, one of the online approaches called Mood Gym, which uses the cognitive behavioural therapy sort of approaches. Great randomised control trials, very, very helpful. Beyond Blue, we just reviewed in two documents, one called A Guide to What Works for Anxiety and another one called A Guide to What Works for Depression. We reviewed all the randomised control trials with the University of Melbourne and come up with a, a sort of a guide for people about what works. And it seems like these online treatments work best when they're accompanied by a clinician. So sort of a hybrid model seems to work very well. But a lot of people will get benefit just from going online as on, on their own. Now, what's going to happen after COVID? There's going to be lots of research. I mean, we've got this big natural experiment that we never would have wanted where we're going to have a whole lot of pre and post data on health utilisation, on um, clinical outcomes and how people are managing, you know, with telehealth, or changes to the health systems. Um, I've been privileged with some colleagues in the Medical Journal of Australia um, in September. We have an article, Crisis as Opportunity, you know, how the health system can reform following COVID. And we just talk about how sometimes a big hit like COVID throws all the cards up in the air and you relook at the health system and how it's working and how it can work better. There's often a stigma around speaking about mental health. What do you think we can do to encourage more open and honest conversations? Yeah, look, I'm very aware that stigma is a big issue and not forgetting as well in Australia, we've got a big uh, community from different cultures and there's some pretty heavy stigma there about mental health, you know, about mental health as weakness and shame for the family. And in the broader Australian community as well, um, you know, still a lot of myths about put your hand up with a mental illness, you're somehow weak um, or you should just snap out of it and it's something trivial. So unfortunately that's not what the research tells us and that's not what I see as a GP. You know, someone who's got unmanaged depression or anxiety can spin their life right out of control, their relationships, their work, their general functioning. And from a research point of view, we know that in the big studies called WADA, um, the burden of disease that look at disability adjusted life years, that the mental health issues are just not trivial. They're really serious and they actually have a big effect on people's lives. So stigmas out there, I always think, um, I'm aware of how far we've actually come. My father's a retired psychiatrist. Uh, he was a GP in the 60s and we've given some talks together about how different it is the way people present with mental distress then and now. You know, so now I'll have a big burly plumber come in and go, oh, good day, Doc. Oh, I just can't sleep. I think I might be getting depressed. You know, it'll just be right up front. Old days, not a chance that that plumber would have come to the GP and said, I've got depression. People came in with all sorts of somatic manifestations and, and, and the doctors also weren't quite 
sure what to do with them. They'd give them rose water or, or do lots of tests, you know. So I think that we have evolved, long way to go. I still think the best way to combat stigma, the media have a great role in this. And I think one footy player talking about mental illness is worth about 100 professors like me, um, resonates with the community and we're particularly mm-hmm. trying to get out to young men. Um, and, you know, rock stars and insta-famous people talking about mental health, it's much more part of the conversation. So we're getting there on stigma but still a way to go. What can employers do in sharing the responsibility for the mental health and well-being of their employees? Employers have such an important role with regards to mental health and the truth is that most of us spend a lot of our lives in our workplace. And um, one thing that I've learned working for Beyond Blue is that I've evolved from thinking as a clinician that mental health, mental well-being sort of lives somewhere inside your head uh, to realising that in the workplaces it really is in the organisational culture and um, there are workplaces that are just great to work out, the culture's great, the leadership's great. There are things leaders can do. So um, leading from the top, speaking a bit about their own vulnerabilities. Now, they don't have to, do, you know, bear their soul to all their staff, but to give their staff, particularly at the moment, a sense of, you know, they're just a human being doing their best and having their own difficulties too. Bring in speakers on mental health topics. And remember, when someone gets sick in a workplace, mentally unwell, everyone's watching what happens. You know, is that person sort of sidelined or does the workplace help them get back to work? And don't forget, getting back to work is sometimes one of the best things for that person's recovery. It's not all about psychology. A lot of it is about good governance. If you've got impossible workloads or deadlines, then you will get people who get mentally stressed, and I see them in general practice. You know, they've got an impossible job to do. Eventually the heroes start to wither a bit. So that's the other thing. And then the obvious but needs to be said Zero tolerance on bullying and discrimination. So many of the people I see, and it's a nightmare for them and a nightmare for the business when someone comes in on stress leave because they've been bullied, is filling out a work cover form. It's it's really messy. It's not comfortable for them. The often the workplaces become very defensive, and and it, it's just not a great situation. So really, setting a culture that doesn't allow bullying, discrimination, isn't a culture that's encouraging gossiping and putting people down. You know, we're not in fairyland. We live in the real world. There are difficult personalities. Once you get enough people, some of those people are going to be very difficult people. But within that, you know, try to keep a good workplace culture. PricewaterhouseCoopers says that every dollar that you put into making a mentally healthy workplace, you get $2.30 back ultimately because less absenteeism, less presenteeism, presenteeism where people are at work but not really, and less sort of claims. So lots of good governance tips, really important area. What do you think the challenges and opportunities will be for Beyond Blue over the next five years? I think for Beyond Blue, um, I'm really enjoying working there. Um, I've been impressed. Um, I work there as their lead clinical advisor. I've been very impressed by the governance. Even when um, 
you know, COVID came along. We were all set up with laptops and working from home, you know, at week one. And I thought, oh, gosh, they're a bit in overdrive here. But, of course, it's proved to be that we were so well prepared that when the government tapped us on the shoulder, you know, only weeks later and said, listen, can you expand, create a new coronavirus phone support service, can you make a new website? We actually worked incredibly effectively and and did that transition well. So I'm really enjoying working with them. Great leadership from Georgie Harmon, our CEO, and I'm quite enjoying watching how good organisation actually runs. And as an organisation, priorities, early intervention and prevention. You know, get in early. We're doing big programs at schools. The BU program's fantastic, over 10,000 schools. And more and more, we want to help people navigate a complex health system. And, you know, we could spend a long time, but if I go to refer someone to psychology, it could be anything from, you know, the Beyond Blue New Access Coaches private psychologists, uh, you know, public psychologists, there'd be demographic limits on where they might go to different costs. So, you know, that whole how does someone who's unwell or worried about a family member get that right help when they need it? You have international links with countries such as China, Indonesia, Israel and Italy. How does Australia's mental health system compare to these countries and are there any lessons we can learn from them? Yes, I've been lucky to to have some international connections. I think the strongest ones I have are probably in China where I go a couple of times a year um, and uh, we teach GPs and I've got a PhD student, Kendall Searle, who's looking at how uh, Chinese doctors actually think about Uh, mental health in primary care. So I've really enjoyed working with them. It's really interesting. I mean, the first thing to say is I think Australia does do very well, and particularly around this COVID time. It's pretty impressive that we've got on the front foot on mental health and said, hey, this is a serious issue. This is part of the pandemic response. What have we got to do? Um, I think, you know, like all systems, there's things that we could improve, but it's pretty amazing that you can go along to a GP, the Better Access Program, go and see a psychologist six or ten times, you know, pretty um, uh, strong hospital systems for people who've got more severe mental illnesses. Are there problems? Absolutely. There's still, you know, stigma and under-resourcing and inequities and people in parts of Australia where they can't access mental health care. So, you know, lots of things to improve. But from an international perspective, we do pretty well. Um, I think um, the UK has been interesting. I had a PhD student compare Australia and the UK system, and I guess the big difference there was that they had patient lists for the GPs which can work and not work. You you can get stuck with something you don't like very much. But on the other hand, I think with some of the mental health conditions, one of the risks here is patients can be sort of everybody and nobody's patient. You know, they can fall through the cracks where one strength of having someone allocated the doctor in that system is that person is responsible for keeping an eye on them and chasing them up if they relapse. So, you know, lots to learn, lots to improve from the overseas experience. A quick mention of Indonesia. So they have these big primary care centres called the Puskas Mus, and Diana Setiawati came and did a PhD with us 
and she looked at how do we train psychologists to work in primary care. So they have psychologists in these big primary care centres. And that's been really fun working with them and teaching them some sort of basic CBT skills, some real sort of community mental health skills. Uh, So that's another model that's evolved. Who or what has inspired you the most in your career? Uh, Well, it would probably be my good friend, the late Professor Tony McMichael, from the ANU and previously the London School of Hygiene, who really was an absolute pioneer on realising what a big problem climate change is for the health sector. So I'm fortunate at the University of Melbourne to work in the field of what's called planetary health. Planetary health sounds a bit hippie or maybe a bit like astronomy, <laughs> but it's actually a, uh, a real um, topic And it really is about how the basic environmental ecosystems need to be supported for human health. And Tony's but was such a world leader. You know, the unfortunate thing at the moment is that we are seeing the impacts of climate change starting to play out, you know, the bushfires up in Wales. And so it's becoming less of a theoretical issue and more of an actual issue. And, And I think the health sector has a very important role to um, be part of the, the solutions in terms of leadership. And also, you don't realise, but, you know, about 10% of our carbon footprints to do with the health system. So there's all th- sorts of things we can do with hospitals, primary care, ways in which we could reduce that footprint. Tony McMichael, lovely, intelligent, generous fellow and a great mentor of mine. What are your top tips for aspiring leaders? It's interesting. I think people who who um, have had some success with their careers over attribute their own efforts and own brilliance, and, and you know it all looks good in retrospect, but it's usually a pretty messy, non-linear approach. And I think that really my approach has been to find awesome people and hang around them. That's basically it. You just you find really good people. Find out how you can collaborate them, collaborate with them. That might be making tea initially, but eventually what happens, the convenience bias is that you're around and they go, oh, I'm working on this paper. You're a good person. Do you want to help me? You know, it's it's more about that. I think for young people, with my master's students this year, we've spent a lot of time talking about vocations because there's no point having a uni degree and then you know, where's the jobs? So they need to be, you know, building up their profile, their LinkedIn needs to be up to date. They should be um, finding people who they want to work with, approaching them in any capacity. They could even say, listen, can I career interview you? Most people love talking about themselves for five or ten minutes. Can I ask how you got into your job? So I've been recommending my students do that. There are a couple of tips of mine, but in the end, you know, a little bit of luck as well. And then try and collaborate with people who are generous, good heart, good mind, and want to work together. And, you know, I've got lots of colleagues who are these absolute gems, and you just know that if you work on anything with them, 
it'll be excellent. The follow-through will be great. The relationships are in good faith. And um, so, you know, I think that culture of, of um, excellent people, to my mind, I love this idea of pockets of excellence. So even if you can't change your whole organisation, if you can find some great people to do some good work with, um, that really a is fun because life's too short to work with annoying people, and B will be very effective. You'll get some great, um, great work done. Mm-hmm.